a series a couple of weeks ago uh, in the Old Testament book of Ezra. We're going to continue that uh, today, looking at uh, Ezra chapter 3. Remember, the people of God uh, received a decree from uh, the king of Persia that all these dispersed people, displaced peoples that had been carried away by the Babylonian Empire are free to go back and worship uh, in their, um, uh, well, where they came from. It's been 70 years or so since uh, God's people have been back fully in Jerusalem. And so uh, last week we read about 42,000 of them uh, making their way uh, back. And so when chapter 3 opens, they're there. And we're going to read about uh, the challenges, uh, uh, particularly fear. Uh, and we're going to read about what they did uh, when they first arrived back uh at Jerusalem. So in light of that, let me pray and uh, then I'll read the scripture. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we come to you today uh, acknowledging our weakness. Um, and that's a hard thing for us to do because uh, uh, we have convinced ourselves and we would love to convince one another that uh, uh, we are strong, uh, that we are fearless, that we are put together. Uh, and we're such liars. And um, you see us inside and out from beginning to end. And yet, uh, in the midst of that, you are drawn, attracted to us to be our God and to make us your people. Would you do that today as we read about people who are afraid? Very afraid, and rightfully so. And so I pray that you would help us see you more clearly in the midst of our very real and profound fears today. Uh, we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Ezra 3, verses 1 through 7, text is in the bulletin, also up on the screens uh, behind me. Uh, this is God's word, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. When the seventh month came... And the children of Israel were in the towns, uh, that is, the towns around Jerusalem. The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his fellow, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia. So um, it's a pretty profound story that we read here, something that is uh, probably kind of counter to the way and, and which we think about dealing with fear. 
Um, most, uh, many times uh, what we do in church when we are confronted with fear is uh, to tell one another not to be afraid. Right? Don't be afraid. And there's certainly plenty of places in the Bible where Jesus shows up and angels shows up. And what's the first thing out of their mouth? Don't be afraid. Why? Why does he have to say, don't be afraid? Because you're afraid, right? Uh, and frankly, you know, uh, I have to say 99 times out of 100, when somebody tells me not to be afraid, it makes me more afraid. <laughs> right? Um, fear is a gigantic motivator. Huge motivator. Fear and shame, probably two of the biggest motivators in the human existence, right? Uh, yesterday we were at, we had a press, we hosted a Presbyterian meeting here and, um, um, uh, I was complaining to, uh, one of the, my, my committee chairman that I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm only supposed to serve two terms on a committee and I, and I saw on the piece of paper that they handed out that there's a three out beside my name, which means I've got a third term. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. And he's like, well, I don't have any power except the power to shame somebody into taking your place. And I said, well, shame might motivate. Is there anybody here I could scare into doing it? <laughs> Because what I realized yesterday is uh, that I had the opportunity to preach at our presbytery, which 30 years ago would have scared me because there were a lot of scary old guys in there who would like nothing better than for you to mess up. And I realized yesterday that now I'm the scary <laughs> old guy, <laughs> which was a little... It's a little disconcerting. I think there were two other guys in the room older than me. So, um, and I have to confess, I preached in front of the presbytery yesterday, and I really wasn't that afraid. So, uh, I guess I, I guess I am the cranky old guy. But um, the fact is, I, it, it would be amazing if you could take an honest inventory of your psyche and your the the way you're motivated and that sort of stuff to think a little bit about how much shame and fear motivate your behavior, right? It would be profound, I think. Well, let me let me let me turn that up even another notch. There's a lot of talk in our culture today, uh, and I I'm I'm not I don't fully understand how this works, but I. Uh, I, this, this is my understanding of, of, of systemic sin, right? Um, now, I don't know exactly how that works, uh, you know, by the sociological uh, definitions of that, uh, uh, that sort of thing. But I do know this. <clears throat> when you have one sinner in a place and they sin, it has an effect, when you get 50 sinners together and they amp each other up and participate more and more and encourage each other's sin together, you don't just have 50 times more sin. You have about 5,000 times more sin because that's, that's the way our depravity sometimes works. And so 
That's, I know that's the way it works with fear because if we can gather ourselves together, one of the things that happens to human beings, ironically, is unlike, I guess, some other animals out there in the animal kingdom that they bunch up together to combat fear, what happens to us sometimes? The more we get together and the more we communicate, the more fearful we become. That's what social media is for, to scare the daylights out of you, right? About some threat, something that's going to happen. Well, the, the fact of the matter is we're very prone to that. And uh, it's something that sweeps through us all the time, all the time. What we see here in this text is something that the motivating factor that is driving these sacrifices and these offerings and this worship service and this reestablishment of, of the God-ordained festivals of the people of God is fear. They're afraid. Now, what's profound to me about that is not that they're afraid. They have reason to be afraid, as, as we'll see. But their default reaction to that fear is to worship. So let's unpack a little bit of this today as we uh, as, as, as we look at this text. So Brian, go ahead and put, put my notes up there. And so what we read here is the seventh month came. This doesn't mean that they've been back to Jerusalem and uh, Israel for seven months. It means uh, they've actually probably only been there a few weeks. But the seventh month on the Jewish calendar has arrived. Now, if you know anything at all about the seventh month in the Jewish calendar, it's the most important uh uh, month. It usually begins sometime around mid, early to mid September to mid to early, uh, October. Uh, <clears throat> typically in the seventh month, you celebrate uh, the new year, ironically, Rosh Hashanah. You celebrate, uh, uh, the, um, the day of atonement and you celebrate, uh, uh, the festival of booths, right? Now, think about this for a second. These people uh, had just made the thousand-mile trek from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem. They've gotten to Jerusalem. It's a ruin, right? Uh, No one's been – no one has has rebuilt it. Uh, and uh, they're they're trying to settle in. There's 42, almost 43,000 of them, and they're trying to settle in there. And they've only been there a matter of weeks. Uh, it's, uh, it's the fall, early fall of the year. What is the first thing that they do? Not secure a place to live so much, although I'm sure there was plenty of that. There was plenty of activity to try to settle down. But what they do is they remember as they gather there that it's the seventh month. And what do you do at the seventh month? You participate in these festivals. You participate uh, in this work, right? And the text tells us that all those 42,000 people gathered as one man in Jerusalem to worship. Uh, and we, that was fully in accord with what Moses had said in Deuteronomy 16. All your males are to appear three times a year before the Lord your God in the place he chooses at the festival of unleavened bread. That's the Passover in the spring. The festival of weeks and the festival of booths. Now, why go to all this trouble? I mean, they just got there. That's a thousand miles, give or take. Uh, most of them walked it. They're old people, they're babies, they're families. Um, you know, it's, it, 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 it had probably taken them about four months. 
to do that. And here they are. And rather than try to secure housing, try to secure food, try to secure those sorts of things, they recognize that we are here in the land of God as the people of God. And what we are going to do is uh, not wait until next year when we're more settled, not wait until another year goes around until we get our act together, because that's that's the way we do things, right? We, I'm always, I think, I think it's so funny, and I'm for it before I criticize it. Uh, that when we begin our, often when we begin our fall programs around here, we can't start the week of Labor Day because that's the week everybody goes back to school and it's so hard. It's so hard, isn't it? To kind of get your act together and then add church on top of that right off the bat after, after summer? Who can do that? No one can do that, right? So we just don't. Because it's too hard. Well, just imagine you've traveled a thousand miles. You don't really have a place to stay. And uh, what are you going to do? You're going to focus your attention on worship. Profound. I just think it's, it's, it's quite a, a, a profound thing. But the reason, the driven reason, is not because they've uncovered the law of Moses or because they suddenly discovered, oh, this is what God wants us to do. They knew God wanted them to do it. But the whole linchpin of the text is right here. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. Now, we, there's not a lot of description of that. We don't, you know, there's not a lot of telling us why it is that they're afraid. But just imagine this. You're one of the returnees, one of the 42,000 people who was in Babylon, and now you show up in Jerusalem. And you have been living in Jerusalem for these last 70 years. You've been trying to hold on. You've been trying to maintain something there. And one day you're sitting in your house and somebody comes to your door and knocks on the door and says, Hi, 70 years ago, my grandfather owned this house. Move out. It's mine. No wonder the peoples of the lands are a little unhappy with them, right? Or just imagine this. Here you are struggling to make it there in Jerusalem, right? And and suddenly, with with no warning, 42,000 people show up, and they need a place to stay. They need a place to be. And they act like they run the place. No wonder there's a little tension here. No wonder there's a little bit of uh, of an issue here. And so as you as you look at as you unpack that, that's exactly what's going on. I'm sure there are property disputes. I'm sure people are disputing, you know, this was my family's property. No, it's your, I mean, and, and, and fortunately, Ezra doesn't go into a lot of uh, detail with us about that. But I am certain there's a lot of unrest. I'm certain there's a lot of threats. I'm certain there's a lot of anger. And so this group of 42,000 people who are there realize, uh-oh, we're in trouble. What are we going to do? We're under threat, real threat. Something bad's going to happen. Now, I, I, I want to I illustrate this for us this morning using, uh, I, I'm going to be very direct about how to think about this this morning. We as a congregation, we as a people, many of us, maybe most of us, believe we're under threat. 
I know that because you tell me you think we're under threat. Um, and, and, and it may be true. I, I know for a fact that many of you worry and fret, and rightfully so to some degree, that someone someday will come in this building and shoot us while we're in here. How ironic, right? Think about how this works for a second. Um, Our backs are turned to the doors. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Seems pretty vulnerable, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Seems pretty scary, doesn't it? We have a plan. We talked about it last year. Uh, the gospel doesn't preclude self-defense. But the reality is, at least based on what this scripture seems to indicate, and I would submit to you the rest of the uh, witness of scripture, um, that we're not vulnerable when our backs are turned and our heads are bowed and we are in worship. In fact... That is what the people of God do when they're afraid. Now, just so you know, there have been times over the history of this church when threatening people have been in here and you didn't know it. Uh, Or I identified someone or another leader in the church identified someone as they could be a problem. And I'll pick one of the bigger guys in the congregation or otherwise and say, would you go sit by that guy? And if he moves, take him down, tackle him right here. You know, I don't think that's counter to this. I think that's wise and I think that's helpful. But the fact is, what happens to us is we begin to despise the fact that we are safest when we are together in worship with our hearts and our attention focused upon the everlasting God. And so here these people, and, 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 and let me just be, be clear about this. You know, the, 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 the threat is real. Um, there are other threats actually to the existence of the church that are worse and that would be more problematic. Uh, but they do happen. Let's acknowledge that, right? But what we see these people doing, what we see their default is arriving at the conclusion that we are afraid and these people that are around us, these people that we actually are kind of displacing here uh, may turn against us. And so what is it that we're going to do rather than, than fortify things, rather than spend our attention on that, we're going to go to worship. Now we'll read in a few weeks, in a few months, uh, when the when Nehemiah gets there and they're building the wall, they build the wall and they they have a weapon in one hand and they have a a, a brick uh, uh, to build the wall in the other. So I'm not saying there's no place at all for self defense, but what I am saying is, what's our default? What's our trust? Where do we go for help? And these folks, their default under the direction of the Holy Spirit, 
is to turn to the God who called them, who loves them, and who owns them, right? So I think this says something profound about our worldview. I think this says something profound about the way in which we approach the uh, uh, the world uh, in which we live. Because here's the way I, I think it would be good for us to think about it this morning. is is, is like this. So we believe that we have truth. We, we believe that the scriptures tell us the truth, that precept upon precept, word upon word, the truth of God, the truth of our lives, the truth of our sin, the truth of Christ's redemption, the truth of history is revealed to us there. And it's largely revealed to us in a story that begins in a garden with a tragedy and a catastrophe and ends in a new city and a new creation and a renewal of all things, right? And so, so this truth comes to us in a narrative, next slide please, Brian, that we tell each other, and we tell each other this narrative every week when we come together for worship, don't we? And then we reenact with one another through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, these great things that God has done for us. Just as the Old Testament people of God gathered together, told one another the story of the deliverance that God had given to them and reenacted that in, in, in the uh, Passover and in the Festival of Booze and in, in all of these offerings and sacrifices. You see, that's an important thing for us because these things, when we gather together and we tell the story of God's love to us, and we interact with that story by eating the bread and drinking the cup, by, by watch, watching uh, someone get washed in the waters of baptism, we re-remind ourselves and we reenact before us the very thing that identifies us. And we do that week after week after week, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and it shapes the way we view the world. It shapes the way we interact with our fears. It shapes the way we interact with one another. It changes our orientation because it tells us that we live in a broken and fallen world that is dangerous, that terrible things happen and that that catastrophes occur in, but not out of the purview of our God. Because in fact, the biggest catastrophe, the biggest tragedy that has ever occurred in the world was the judicial murder of the Son of God on a cross. And yet God used that to redeem us, to change us, and to take this world broken by sin and begin the process of renewing it. So we have this revelation. We have this story. And it, it's, it's not just facts that are out here. God intends for us to internalize this reality, to shape the way we live in a world that is broken in a world that is full of terrible, terrible things, right? So not only not only do we uh, have these things that we do to help us remember the stories, the fact that we actually take the bread and drink the cup, the way the fact that we actually feel the water on our heads and see it actually help us to enter into that. I mean, just imagine this feast of booze there in Jerusalem there on the seventh month. These people have all, that's all they've been doing is living in tents. They just got there, right? And, and so they are re-remembering not only, not only their uh, trek, 
but they're remembering their ancestors' trek, and they're remembering that the God who is there with them in Jerusalem in the midst of this now was the same God who was there with their people, their ancestors, when they came out of Egypt. Our God loves us, and his love is not changed or diminished. His, he, he gives us these gifts. He gives us the story. He, he gives us these sacraments. He gives us these things to help us be shaped and changed and to help our thinking and our emotions be reoriented towards the truth. So the reality is what we see here today is not that, um, and, and what this, this text tells us is God doesn't rebuke the fear of those people. He doesn't tell them, you don't have anything to be afraid of. He says, in your fear, what's your default? Turn to me. They could have appealed to Cyrus. They could have appealed to other nations. They could have entered into some sort of diplomacy. They, they could have taken all that money that they brought with them. And rather than spend it on rebuilding the temple, what... What, what they could have spent it on weapons, but they don't. They take the time to gather as one man in a giant festival, living in tents in and around the ruins that are there in Jerusalem, offering their sacrifices, worshiping together. It's a pretty powerful picture for us. And, 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 and it's so encouraging to me to see that because what that tells me is, is that the work of God and, and God's people is manifest in this, in, in, in this way. They don't give way to fear. And their coming together as one man doesn't cause a mob, but it causes a congregation to be formed there that enters into worship of the living God who is their shepherd, their protector, and their father. We live in a fearful world. I, 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 I think it is, uh, ironically, I think we live probably in the most fearful time ever. Uh, certainly the potential for terrible things to happen seems to be greater now, uh, maybe than... Uh, in any time past. And yet, Jesus Christ and his love and his care for us is the same as it's always been. And so as we come to the table today, we get to celebrate, to reenact, and to participate in the great thing that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Hear these words now of institution. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. The gifts of God for the people of God. Uh, let's confess our sins together by using uh, this uh, prayer of confession that is uh, based on the Ten Commandments. It's in the bulletin and also up on the screens uh, behind me. O Lord, our God, who brought his people out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and by Christ delivered us from sin, you have been faithful to keep all the promises of your covenant. 
But we, O Lord, have been a stiff-necked people who love unfaithfulness. We have loved other gods before you and become their servants. We have not worshipped you in spirit and in truth, so we have mocked your glory in heaven. We have used your name in vain and profaned your reputation on earth. We have desecrated your Sabbath because we have not trusted you to give us rest. We have not honored our fathers and mothers, and so we have proved ourselves rebels. We have hated our neighbors and murdered them in our hearts. We have made adulterers of ourselves in the lust of our eyes or in the deeds of our flesh. We have stolen honor and wealth and privileges that are not ours. We have lied and falsely accused, for we loved gossip more than truth. We have coveted blessings which you wisely and righteously gave to others. O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have not kept your law. Believer, hear these words of encouragement. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. 